I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. Hey everybody, it's JJ. And her husband, Dave. And we are excited about this episode today. We have a special guest. They're all kind of special, aren't they? They are very special. Well, that's why I like this podcast so much. This one's extra special, though. Aren't they all a little extra special? Just like everyone else. (laughs) Our guest this week is one of only nine remaining master penmen. I told you he was extra special. In the world. He's had an incredible career, but right at the beginning of his career, we met him at a camp. Yeah, I remember that you walked up to me and you had a piece of paper in your hand and it had like this beautiful flowing script on it. And you were like, this guy came up to me and said he was a master penman. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but look at what he gave me. And it, and it was like his contact information in this like beautiful calligraphy. Yeah. It was like art Mm -hmm. on a note. Mm -hmm. And we were like, this is really cool. We don't know how to incorporate that in our artwork at this time. Yeah, especially at the time we were still kind of like, maybe we're making pop music. Maybe we're edgy. Yeah. Oh, we kind of blew it, didn't we? Yeah. We should have taken him up on his offer. Yeah. Fortunately for us, our paths have crossed again. We now are friends with Jake and his wife, and they are incredible. He also, he made us espresso once. Oh, yeah. We went over to their house when we were in the Denver area. It was really good. I would be lying if I said I didn't want a second cup of espresso. (laughs) He's the kind of person that does not settle. But you will discover that for yourself. Yeah, let's hear his story. We tell stories backwards on our show, so get ready to hear the most recent chapter of Jake's story. Here we go. Act three, the small things. Sometimes it feels like the life of an artist is a constant ebb and flow with little to no consistency. After a season of growth, Jake and his wife made a big investment, just as Jake's work opportunities began to decline. Let's hear from Jake. We had a lot more expenses with a larger house and larger studio, and Hannah specifically was just really distraught, thinking like, what had we done? We made this big step of faith, and it seemed like it was the right place to go. And I remember a a night where it was like, Hannah and I were both like, this isn't going to work. We can't make this work. Where's the feasibility? Hannah was like, she goes, maybe I need to do something else. And so that night I actually got, I got like another whisper from God as I was laying in bed distraught and said, Hannah needs to start her own business and you have to support her in it now. And so it was this crazy turn, whereas like all this time Hannah had been supporting me and writing for me and marketing for me and and sending out artwork for me. And so now it was a time where I was like, I was supposed to support her. And it was like, I've never had a moment flip from from like total despair to unbelievable joy and excitement. Mm-hmm. And laying there in bed, I like couldn't, it was like I, I wasn't able to sleep 
before because I was so anxious. And then it was like I couldn't sleep anymore because I was like, I've got to tell Hannah this. And Hannah was pregnant at the time with Henry. And so that's pretty bold when you wake up the next morning and you're trying to find that right moment to tell your pregnant wife when we're already <laughs> overwhelmed to start a new business. Uh, but that was that was the dawn of everyday heirloom. Well, well, tell us about how that conversation went. Were you in the kitchen in the morning and you're like, Hey, so I heard from God. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, Hannah woke up. She was still like very distraught, and I was like telling myself, I was like, wait till after the first cup of coffee, <laughs> and you better make her a dang good cup of coffee, because because uh, <laughs> that's gonna help the you know this go down a lot smoother. And so I waited, and I was like trying to hold my excitement and not get ahead of her in my exuberance over this thing, and and just kind of bring it up and just sort of suggest this idea that. Hannah, I think you need to start your own business. And I said, I just crying out to the Lord last night. I got one of the quickest responses ever. And and this is what he told me. And I said, I think this is what you should do. It's like, you've been so faithful. You've worked for me for so long to see my calling brought into the light. And I said, I want to see you um, given the opportunity for your gift and your heart to be expressed in something that you've created. You've worked for me. Now, now it's my turn to work for you, and uh, and I had I had all of this hand engraving equipment, which represented a brand new medium for me and a whole new skill set that I wanted to learn. But it was like I knew I would never get the opportunity to actually learn it and get to the level of proficiency that I wanted to if it wasn't paying the bills. You know, when you make a living doing what you love, then what you love always has to make you a living. <laughs> so that's the way of the artist. She had asked me to make her a couple of like necklaces and she gave me these ideas for designs. And, and so I went out and I did them and, and people kept asking, she's like, do you sell these? And I said, this is, you should turn this into a business. You tell me what to do and I'll go out and do it. You give me a design suggestion and I'll come up with it and we'll create this business. And it just, it flowered. And like, so then the tense moment right after I framed this to her, you know, that morning, here she is very pregnant at the time and uh, <laughs> just completely overwhelmed. And there was like just a hint of a smile that came across her face. And it was like you could see sort of the, you know, that cloud of stress and, and depression lifting. She goes, that that sounds kind of interesting. And then she started brainstorming. And by the end of that week, she had already come up with a name. She already had some ideas of what she wanted to do. She took it and ran with it. It's had its growing pains as well, especially when you're trying to, to balance like all of, you know, a whole other career simultaneously. So we have sort of this ongoing joke that it's like uh, every time every time we have a kid, we have to have another business to go along with it. So. <laughs> Uh, so that becomes a question. It's like if, if we go for if we go for kid number three, that means we have to do a third business as well. I'm not sure that's a recipe for success. I know. I know. <laughs> Me either. How did it feel to take on that sort of co-pilot role as opposed to holding the reins the way that you were used to? You know, I was giving up doing these massive paintings and these great big carvings to engrave these small necklaces. And I was working through a microscope. And, you know, it was a test of, like, whose glory are you really chasing after? Yeah. And these great grand pieces, are they, are they more for you or are they for me? Are you willing still to serve me in the quiet places? Hmm. Are you still willing to to do the small things 
Not do the great big things for my name, but do the small things. Like the literal small things. <laughs> yes. Like on these tiny, tiny necklaces. Little pendants and things. Yeah. I mean, I was doing just a single, like single initial. And Hannah brought me the first pendant like that she wanted me to engrave. And it was, it was, a, it was a little gold disc that's nine millimeters in diameter mm. and so and she's like she's like can you can you engrave something on this and i was like this i was like that's that's absolutely crazy but you know it it pushed my i mean it pushed my skills like crazy and it i mean it's like we're two years into it and it's like when you get to a place in your career and you've reached a certain level of proficiency and many different mediums to start over from scratch like brand new is is one of the scariest hmm. most unnerving things to do but it's been amazing to see the way that i have seen my wife blossom and talk about meeting people in the sacred moments of their life i mean we're doing necklaces for renewing vows for uh the loss of a spouse or loss of a child being from Colorado, we created this series, the the Go Forth series, and so I actually engrave uh, on this small horizontal bar necklace a mountain range, and so we got this one request from from somebody to create a mountain range inspired by the heartbeat of the baby that they lost. It was really far into their pregnancy, and they lost this baby. <laughs> you know, to sit down in that moment, and here I'm looking at the EKG readout of this tiny baby and translating it into a mountain range on this bar. And as I'm engraving through a microscope and tracing this baby's heartbeat, I mean, it's even, it's even something still that I had to stop several times because I kept tearing up in the process, thinking like I'm, you know, I'm tracing the heartbeat of this child that is, is no longer with us. You know, it's like I believe he's nuzzled into the bosom of Christ in glory, but to do something like that felt like it felt like tracing the fingerprint of God. There's just a, such a demand of intensity in the work that I do because it is on a technical level, every single aspect is technically demanding. Calligraphy stroke by stroke matters. And when you're painting in realism, you're having to blend to the utmost to deceive the eye and make it think like it's looking at the real thing. And when you're carving in wood, that's representational as well. So it has to be dead on accurate. Engraving, of course, has the smallest tolerances of at all at the microscopic level. So everything that I do is is absolutely <laughs> intense. You don't strike me as someone who does anything halfway. <laughs> no, I mean, you can't. Those times when you don't, you really feel like you're letting yourself down. I like the intensity, the ecstasy and the agony that Michelangelo spoke of, and you learn to find it in all things. I just love how dedicated Jake is to every facet of his craft. That kind of commitment is something you rarely see. But I think that part of Jake's secret is that he actually loves his work. I kind of feel that way about editing podcasts. I know, that's so true. 
People might think you're joking, but you're not. No, I really enjoy it. Like you will spend hours and hours and like lose all track of time. You know when they talk about being in a state of flow? Have you heard that before? Yeah. It's kind of like going into a place of effort where time just seems to disappear. Hmm. And I feel like Jake has found his. This is my challenge to you if you're hearing this is to consider what are the things that you do that make time disappear like that. Those are the type of people we need in this world. And it doesn't have to make you money. It's nice if it makes you money. But people who do the things that they're passionate about are amazing people to be around. They do great work for other people and they enjoy the work that they're doing. Yeah. And they also make pretty good podcast guests. Yes. Well, before we hear act two of Jake's story, we need to head back into the distant past all the way to the year 2015. (laughs) That's not very distant. I know, but iPhones still had headphone jacks, and that feels like a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, And, you know, like this was the year when you just saw all of those hoverboard little electric scooters that everyone was falling off of and like getting head injuries. And breaking their arms. They were, the batteries were exploding and burning down homes. Yeah, that was the year 2015. Doesn't that feel like a long time ago? Yes, it does. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if Jake had a hoverboard, but let's hear what he was up to. Act two, no one's fishing. Trying to make a living as an artist is not for the faint of heart. We pick up Jake's story in 2015, when after dedicating thousands of hours to the craft of penmanship, Jake, along with his wife, Hannah, had some big decisions to make. We got a call back, and I was with my wife in California. We were actually visiting some friends in Newport. And uh, she said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that our client selected you, and they want to, like, feature your story in this micro-documentary series that we're doing. And our client is Coors. And so I was like, uh, yeah, I know them. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're right in my backyard, and uh, they're, they're pretty big. They did some research online and they found an interview that I did for an online blog called The Art of Manliness. And then I also have a TED Talk out that I gave in 2014. And I mean, I was just so excited. And she's like, now you can't say anything about it. In fact, we're going to send you an NDA and, you know, you can't talk about it until the video is actually released. Is that a non-disclosure agreement? Yes. It's actually a national... Basketball Association. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the NBA's sort of uh, step cousin. Okay. (laughs) Ah, basketball. Yeah. (laughs) What would that even be shaped like? What would that involve? A basket. I don't know. Okay, so they send you an NDA. It felt disorganized. It felt all over the place. And I was like, what did I sign up for? In all honesty, I was really close to pulling out of the whole thing. I was like, this this does not seem legitimate. It's like, I know Coors is a big thing, but 
come to find out that's just sort of the it's the modus operandi of people who work in the production world is like they're you know they're calling you off the cuff and they're figuring things out because in the end it ended up being one of the most incredible and professional crews that I've ever worked with it was really amazing it was kind of a huge production so they had an 11 man crew that showed up in my small condo and they had all of this video gear and all these like different people screening stuff at my kitchen table uh, <laughs> while we're doing it. So this major production, and it was sort of a crazy, surreal moment. Thankfully, the week leading up to that is like I had prepped this piece that I wanted them to film, and they wanted it to be around craftsmanship. So I created this title piece just for the shoot. It says, preserve the past and forge the future all surrounding the word craftsmanship because that's what they were really trying to express, especially in our day and age of like this rise of craft. By and large, what I was really speaking to was my career as an artist and the importance of handwriting in our day and age. So there was a lot that was packed into this video. I've been a part of a lot of different video shoots and everything sort of seems like chaos right before. And then it all sort of comes together in this fury on the day of. It was one of those like crazy uncertain seasons we had a meeting with a man who sort of became like our acting business manager. He's almost like a second father to us. And so he was saying, like, just keep stocking the pond, you know, just keep creating artwork, keep stocking the pond. And I, I told him, I was like, Steve, I said, I am, I'm stocking the pond. Nobody's fishing. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't know what else to do. And we walked away from that meeting and it was a hard time, even between Hannah and I, there was just a lot of turmoil and a lot of frustration in our career. And even like right before that, Hannah was working for me and I actually, I fired her. Um, that's, uh, and I tell people either, either I fired her or she would have killed me. So it was, you know, sort of an act of self-preservation. Win-win. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, I mean, I, I can still remember like holding her. It was like a really hard day. She just felt so lost trying to learn how to be wife to me, but also be like assistant and manager and, you know, CEO, ever, all the hats that she has to wear as somebody who owns and runs a business. And so I remember holding her in my arms and I just said, you are here forth and hence with relieved of all of your duties of Jake Weidman <laughs> Incorporated. And it was like, it was amazing to feel just sort of this weight fall off of her from that moment. You know, I'm trying to figure things out alone. It was sort of a dead time. Having just finished this major commission that we weren't able to tell anybody about, we were sort of dead in the water that way. We had shot the video, but we hadn't heard anything. We didn't know what it was going to release, and we didn't have any sort of expectations for it. And it was that day that we, like, we just actually closed the door in our bedroom. We didn't jump online right away and see it. We are like, you know what? Let's just quietly step into our room, and let's just pray. Because I don't want to see, I don't want to see the result of everything that we've poured our lives into and see everything that this production crew has created while there's still this dark cloud hanging over us. And so it's like, let's call on the God who speaks into the storms to clear away these clouds that are over us right now. And it was just amazing just to feel like the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's the quiet part. I mean, that's that. I don't know if I've ever really told anybody that. And so after a while, we're like, okay, let's go see what this video 
video is and see what they came up with. And so we we sat together. I still remember Hannah sitting on my lap at that moment as we clicked play for the very first time on this video. And uh, it brought us both to tears in the moment. Like when we saw it, we were like, wow, that was really cool. It not only told my story, but it told our story as a couple. We didn't know what to expect. I mean, I kind of had low expectations just because a lot of these promotional opportunities come and go and they don't really do much for you. They're usually like a blip on the radar. I was honestly, I was a little bit naive because uh, by the time we clicked onto it, it had already had like 100,000 views. Wow. And so we were like, I guess that's normal. And then, you know, we were getting emails from the uh, production company saying like, your video is doing extremely well and we're really happy about it. And we're like, oh, that's great. You know, of course they're going to tell us that and yada, yada. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's sweet that they would follow up. And you then, say that to all the guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Exactly. <laughs> then things started changing very quickly because it was like it was going up by the millions each day. Wow. wow. And, and so by the end of the week, it had over 20 million views. Wow. And and so it just became this crazy viral thing. And so that's where we were like, okay, this is something different. And then all of a sudden it was like, we were getting orders for, for art prints, like more than we could handle. You know, we had overwhelmed one art printer and we had to go source out another art printer to try and figure out who could reproduce some art prints for us. And we were just day and night, um, sometimes till the wee hours of the morning, signing prints and certificates of authenticity. And Hannah was rolling them up and sticking them in tubes. And we were <laughs> oh taking, you know, carloads of tubes to the post office to ship them out. You were running your own web store and fulfilling all the orders yourselves? Yes, we still do. We still fulfill everything ourselves. We're not through any kind of publishing house or whatever. So it's always been a critical aspect of sort of quality control. And, you know, I have to look and approve every single art print as it goes out the Mm -hmm. door and sign each one. So at this time, you know, Hannah wasn't technically working for me. Uh, You know, she was... (laughs) (laughs) She was still let go from Jake Weidman Incorporated, but we very quickly figured out, we were like, this, this isn't going to work. You got to, you got to come back. Now there was an obvious place for her to come into and an obvious like job for her to do. It was sort of crazy on top of crazy because here we were like trying to fulfill orders. And then towards the end of that same week that the video launched, we got these emails like from this woman who was just tenacious. And she was like, she goes, I have a big client and they want to talk to you right away. Please call me back. So we click download on the non-disclosure agreement. And at the top, it says Apple Inc. And we're like, "Uh, okay. Um, (laughs) I I think there's only one Apple. And uh, It's like some children's toy product or something. I know. Some some orchard in like Grand Junction, Colorado or something. (laughs) And so we were like, what in the world? So we signed the NDA and right away I get uh, a phone call from somebody who's like 
on the production team for Apple, and they want to fly me out that weekend to do a video production shoot for the release of a new product. And so I was like, I was like, what in the world is going on? And it just seemed like it was all of these major opportunities that just started coming one after another. And it was like finally this moment of just being thrust into the limelight onto the world stage and all of my art to be seen and everybody just it was received so well just more than I could have ever imagined and so here I told my business manager Steve like the pond is stocked but nobody's fishing and then all of a sudden it was like four greyhound buses show up to my pond of the the best fishermen with their golden fishing rods (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) that was surreal it was much more than I could have ever imagined As great as those big public moments are, the real making of my career and my fortitude as an artist were actually done in the quiet space nobody really knows about. And that's where your real metal gets tested. They get no views. They're not on YouTube. (laughs) They're not on Facebook. As great and exciting and full of confetti and fireworks as the moments of like the launch of the Coors video was, that's just the affect of the deeper things, the greater work. Uh, that God is doing in my heart and in my soul. So Hannah comes back to work with me full time. And we just acknowledge right away that there's now an obvious place for her and a definite need for her. And so that was a big adjustment. I mean, that was a little bit tenuous stepping back into it because it was like we, you know, I've already had to let you go once, sweetheart. So (laughs) Don't mess this up. Right. And so it's like, I don't know what this is going to do for our marriage. How did that conversation go? It was a tender conversation. I never really asked her to come back. I never really said, I need you back here. She brought it up. She goes, you need me to help you out, don't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. (laughs) And uh, she was working two other jobs at that time. She was working as a nanny, and then she was also working as a receptionist at a high-end salon. And so she had to put in notice at both of those jobs and come back to work for me. And so it was very decided that it was like, it wasn't going to be just me. It wasn't going to always be about my career. And it was always the two of us together. So she came with me on every major trip when I did my first filming with Apple. And then I was asked back to be a demonstrator at the Apple special event going and visiting Pixar and speaking at Pixar University, um, all of these things that that came after and those residual bumps that came along the way in our career, um, she's always been a part of that. We got an email inquiry once from... Uh, from somebody who wanted me to do a big musician's like album cover. And at the time, you know, I was working on, I I think I was working on the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. There's a lot of work that I do that is commissioned, but there's also a lot of work that I do that's just my own original idea that I create prints from. And so it's not commissioned. You have to rough it out for a while and spend the time committed to get it done. So I think I was working on that piece and I get this query from from this guy who's like, he's like, hey, I've got this uh, big name artist and I want you to do his album cover. I said, we're just, I'm busy right now and I don't have the time to actually do this. And he's like, he goes, I don't think you understand. He's like, the, the musician is Drake. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? 
No, we're just busy with other pieces right now. Wow, man. You know, it was like, we talked about it and our answer still remained. I was like, no, that's that's not the highest and best use of my gift. Well, doing the Drake cover would be more of a commercial opportunity rather than a fulfillment of your mission. Right. exactly. It's like here I'm taking the heartfelt words of someone who's crying out to God in the midst of their pain and writing one of the most beloved hymns of all times or you know, creating the album cover for one of the top selling artists of our time. And, you know, it was like, that was just something that I decided it's not for me. It's like life, how short, eternity, how long. When you frame the artwork in that way, in the context of eternity and the eternal impact that it could have, I believe that that the artwork is not an end in itself, but a means to transformation in the people who see it. While I create in the archival, God creates in the eternal. And so if I can facilitate an experience in an art piece that creates a lasting change that extends into eternity, because it's like somebody has a transformational experience looking at my piece, then it's like, that's worth every moment. You know, that's worth every amount of intensity to pour myself into this piece, uh, to set the stage just for God to take it. Well, if that's the litmus test when it comes to doing a work based on a hymn versus doing an album cover for a rap artist, um, <laughs> yeah, the choice is very clear, right. right? The latter seems rather trivial, does it not? I mean, it's like I just did... You know, I just did the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It might not be the piece that gets me the most notoriety, or, but I feel it the deepest. And uh, hmm. there's a great quote from St. Francis of Assisi. He defines an artist by kind of giving this triple definition. He says, a man who works with his hands is a laborer. A man who works with his head is a craftsman. But a man who works with his hands, his head, and his heart is an artist. And so... For me, creating that hymn, it was like that actually elevates it to get to my heart. And so in that way, it's like I feel like I've reached the fullness of what it means to actually be an artist when I'm creating work that is on that level. I think it's so important to have a mission for your work. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Yeah, there are plenty of quote unquote good opportunities that have come our way that we eventually have to say no to, not because they're bad, but just because they're not the best use of our time. Of course, when you're first starting out, you kind of have to say yes to just about every opportunity because you're still trying to gain some experience. But eventually, you come to a place where you've figured out what makes you come alive, what's special about what you do, and how you can serve people best. And that sounds exactly like what Jake did in that story. We're closing in on Jake's origin story, but in order to hear it, we need to go back in time to the late 80s. Uh, I remember them well. <laughs> New kids on the block. We're hanging tough. Will Smith wasn't yet a famous actor, but he was a rap artist winning a Grammy for a heartwarming song called 
parents just don't understand. Oh, man. Remember that one, JJ? I actually, I don't know that I've ever heard that song. Dude, I went over to my neighbor's house and he played it for me. And I was like, oh, this is cool music. Really? He's complaining about his parents. Oh, yeah. That's really cutting edge. Yeah, and you were like, I feel empowered. (laughs) No one understands me, man. (laughs) Especially my parents. I hope our children never hear that song. No. JJ, maybe you can cover that song on a future lullaby album. Oh, yes, that's brilliant. You know, it's like like, Edelweiss, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Parents Just Don't Understand. (laughs) Yeah, do like a rap covers. I dream of you. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that would be incredible. Okay, well, uh, let's mull that one over. Maybe it could only be Will Smith covers. Here's what I know about Will Smith is like when I was 10, I went over to my friend Chris's house and he was just starting to get into like cool music, yeah. right? And he was like, my favorite song is Summertime, which was a, a Will Smith song. Yeah. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to play like a little tiny clip. And at the time I was listening to the oldies station so like motown and stuff like that and i was like oh that's a cool song summertime summertime some 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 oh sweet little david heller <laughs> i was really in the know yeah i got one more time some some summertime summertime <laughs> to mash up Well, Will Smith was rapping his heart out, and young Jake Weidman was discovering what made his heart come alive. Ooh, good transition. Act one, just keep going. Well, it may feel like Jake was always destined to be an artist, it took several instrumental moments to set him on his present path. This act includes a favorite toy, wedding invitations, and a hundred new grandparents. Art was something that I always did. And my parents never worried about me, even from the age of three. They knew that if they couldn't find me, that I'd be up in my room coloring a picture. (laughs) It was in first grade. It was almost like my daily ritual. I would go into the class and I would uh, tear off the edges of that old paper, you know, that had the holes through it. I can't remember that old, like, accordion-style folding printer paper and I would always draw before class and uh, I had this one favorite toy of mine it was a it was a little stuffed parrot and I had taken it to class and I set it up on my desk and I decided to draw this parrot and I wanted to give him a home so I drew a tree and a nest and everything and I loved the opportunity of creating new worlds to me that was all the more powerful than playing pretend and imagining new worlds because I could actually create them on paper. As I was sitting there, my teacher, Mrs. K, came up behind me and said, oh, Jake, this drawing is absolutely beautiful. I want to I want to hang it up in the class. And so she took my drawing away, you know, even before I had a chance to completely finish it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, several days go by and I didn't see, you know, I didn't see it up on the, the walls and I was sort of a shy kid. So I never really asked about it. And then one day I came to school and I was hanging up my school bag and I looked up 
And there was my picture of the parrot matted beautifully on black construction paper with a line of all these other pictures that kids had done throughout the school, but mine had a blue ribbon next to it with first place. And so Mrs. K had entered it into the school contest without me knowing, and I won the school contest. And so I rushed in to class after hanging up my bag, and I said, Mrs. K, Mrs. K, did I win the art contest? And she's like, you did, Jake, you did. She says, you are my little artist. And it was from that moment, just like this word spoken over me that stuck with me and solidified that in my character as a title that would follow me the rest of my life. I always excelled from that moment until I was in college and I was actually getting my degree in psychology because I figured, you know, I'm not going to be able to make a living from art, right? That's just an impossibility. And um, (laughs) what I wanted to do is I actually wanted to specialize in art therapy, and that requires actually getting an art degree. And so I went into the art department to apply for an art minor. So I took in this portfolio up to that time, and it had several of my pieces in there. And, you know, the chair of the department flipped through it, just no expression, whatsoever. He didn't even get all the way through and he just closed the portfolio and he said, you know, I just don't think you're right for our program and handed it back to me. You know, that was the first time that my art was not recognized on some level, but the program at the time was pushing heavily postmodern abstract or graphic art. And I didn't want to do either. So, you know, I was very thankful in many ways that he identified that I was absolutely wrong for that program. But those moments, they're forks in the road. And so while one road was closed off, it directed me down a path, building a career on my own and starting to seek out commissions. And so it was that same week I actually got the largest commission up to that point from a professor in another department. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Kind of a crazy turn of events. When you were told you're not right for our department, was there ever a moment where you thought to yourself, have I made a horrible mistake? Or was there something that rose up inside of you that was like, I'm going to prove you wrong? I have skills and you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) In every artist lies the heart of a rebel. And uh, (laughs) I think, (laughs) uh, I think when I heard that, I was like, I was like, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong. My mom has incredible cursive handwriting that I had always grown up admiring and my grandma had incredible penmanship and I just loved it and I I was like you know if I'm gonna be called an artist then I want everything that comes from my hand to be a thing of beauty Hmm. I was at age like 12 (laughs) when I thought this and so it was like it was something there I was like I was going to work on my handwriting and I loved cursive up to the point that I got to college like 
my handwriting was, I mean, frankly, ridiculous. I was like ornamenting all of my writing and, um, and I would sit in class. Like I would always be the last guy who finished his test. And when you're in psychology, you do a lot of essay tests. And so you fill up like a blue book, which is just like notebook paper, you know, stapled together. And, and I would fill that blue book up with this like beautiful ornamented cursive and uh, I was also like big into bodybuilding in college and so a lot of my classmates assumed like oh there's the big dumb jock he doesn't know his test material he is always the last one to finish and little did they know I was just <laughs> practicing my handwriting <laughs> it was like something that I had become known for among my professors and even my classmates. And then one of my classmates who was engaged and getting married, and she says, hey, is there, is there any way you'd be willing to design my wedding invitations? And, uh, and I was like, what? I, I write with a ballpoint pen. I don't do any formal style of calligraphy. But I said, you know what? Let me do some research and I'll see what I can find. I went back to my college dorm room started searching out these terms, stumbled onto the term copper plate calligraphy, and YouTubed some examples of it. And I found one of the other master penmen, John DeColibus, and he was writing white ink on black paper. And this script just flowed out of this pen that I had not known of up until that moment. And I was like, I knew. Love it first sight. Yeah, I was, it was definitely, it was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so I did. And I found this small association that was keeping the art of penmanship alive. And I wrote to one of the other master penmen, Michael Soule, I wrote him a letter in my fanciest handwriting, and uh, <laughs> he wrote me back, and he says, I see great promise in your work, but before I send you any practice materials, I want to send you volume one of my book, which gave the broad history of American heritage handwriting and all of these great master penmen that had come before me. And it was amazing. I just, I ate it up and, you know, practiced every night. I started doing all of my school assignments now with a dip pen, oh, wow. uh, which was absolutely <laughs> ridiculous and <laughs> took me forever. Two birds with one stone. Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This association, they have a meeting once a year. And, you know, I showed up and it was like, it was less than a hundred people the vast majority of them were, were dear, sweet, older people. And, <laughs> and I wandered in and, uh, and they're like, they're like, young man, are, are you lost? Are you, are, are you looking for someone in particular here at this hotel? And I was like, I'm, I'm looking for you. I'm, I'm here to learn calligraphy. And they're like, no way. We haven't <laughs> seen a young person in here in years. <laughs> and so they're like, they welcomed me in with, with open arms. It was like having, you know, a uh, hundred new grandparents all in one day. It was just <laughs> fantastic. Because you're you're in your early twenties at this point, right? Yep, I was uh, twenty two when I showed up to my first Penman conference. Wow! Most people would say this is the nerdiest place in the world to be, but I thought it was heaven on earth. It was just absolutely my utopia. You found your people. Yes, I did. Are the people who attend a conference like that just? Very, I just picture the sloths in um, Zootopia. Zootopia. <laughs> <laughs> and, hey, and no one's in hey. a hurry, right? Is it, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I know what you think, but uh, 
there's definitely an element of slowness. By and large, like people are, they're sweet and they're quiet. And, you know, you attend like a class on medieval illumination letters. Like it, it's like one of the most peaceful places to be, you know, and mm-hmm. just painting individual colors layer by layer or learning how to lay on gold leaf and these beautiful things that are that are done in this slow way. But I don't know. We can cause a ruckus at our <laughs> penmanship conferences. One guy slapped the table once. <laughs> we'll like go into the hotel bar and we'll like spread out all of our calligraphy stuff and we're like having wine and beer and doing calligraphy at the table and we're asking the waiters like what's your name we'll do your name with a bird flourish and and so we just we're a party we are a party (laughs) it sounds like it Back in the day during the golden age of penmanship, you can get your degree as a penman because this was before typewriters. So having a professional penman on staff in many different establishments was sort of standard. Hmm. But the ones who like who went above and beyond, who were doing unbelievable original things in the art form were regarded as master penmen. And I knew I wanted to reach that level of proficiency and skill. So they're like the Navy SEALs of penmen. That's right. That's a great way to picture them. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the requirements to be a master penman? In this day and age, like the tradition of master penman is maintained almost solely through this association. In order to become a master penman, you have to prove like a level of proficiency across multiple disciplines in calligraphy. And then you're invited into an apprenticeship program with one of the existing masters. And then after a year minimum of being sort of under their wing as their apprentice, then the final test is you have to execute your own certificate. And that certificate has to represent all of the disciplines that you've done up to that moment. Hmm. If it doesn't pass muster, you've got one more try. And then otherwise you have to wait like another five years before you try wow. again. So, And are all the like existing master penmen the judges for these submissions? Yes. Okay. So it's it's like the most intimidating panel of judges to do work for. How long was it between you discovering the existence of the master penman and your completion of your certificate? Uh, it was about six years. It was one of the shortest time frames. A lot of the other existing master penmen had been studying for like up to 30 years wow. by that point. I mean, I was spending every waking moment studying the history, working on my penmanship, trying to bring those up. And it's like every time I put pen to paper, I considered it practice. And so I had thousands and thousands of hours of writing calligraphy, so to speak. I mean, calligraphy just means beautiful writing. Hmm. And so there were certainly some hurdles to cross. But when you're in your passion, when you're doing what you love, it doesn't seem like suffering. It seems hmm. like all joy. Hmm. Could you describe what the day was like where you presented this final project? It was like a a nerve-wracking day. How old were you? 26. I was fresh out of college with this brand new shining degree in psychology that I I couldn't really do anything with. (laughs) And uh, in the middle of a recession, and I'm doing this master penman certificate, Talk about one of those like quiet moments in your life that you really point back to as a tipping point. It's like, that was it. Working on this certificate 
It's on genuine vellum, and I'm gilding the thing in 24 karat gold leaf. I was having to like put off my school loans because I wasn't even able to make payments. And here I am like gilding this certificate in gold leaf. Wow. I was living with my parents at the time, working on this thing in my little like this little makeshift studio I'd built in their basement. I remember setting down the the brush from from doing the gilding and I like got down on my knees and I was like, God, what am I doing? Is this really what I should be doing. Is this about me or is this what you really called me into? And I said, because if not, I put it on the altar here and now. Everything like right here, I mean, it's kind of amazing. You think of like, it's calfskin vellum and here it is like Mm -hmm. putting it on the altar as a sacrifice and saying like, I'm willing. If this is not what you have for me, then I'll step away and I'll do something else. You know, it was this quiet moment that just said, just keep going. So I had poured myself into this piece, you know, that took a month to do just in all of the the painting, the calligraphy, the planning and gilding. And then I carved a frame for it to go into because I was like, if this is going to be the one certificate that represents my skill as an artist, I want the three-dimensional aspects not required as part of the program, but... Extra credit. I, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I did that and I had already made the pen that I did it with. <laughs> And so uh, so everything was like, all of who I was was poured into this thing. So the day came, it was the end of the week. Nobody had seen the certificate up to this point except for my mentor and the president at the time because they had to give their signatures on it. And it was on an easel with a veil. And so I talked about it, thanked everybody through the process, and then it was like it finally came the moment to pull the veil. And it Wait, was like- uh, Yeah, and you're probably like, okay, if this is not enough, <laughs> I honestly could not do a single bit more. Like, <laughs> right, right. I was, I mean, I was, I was wrung dry and I felt just emotionally doubled over inside, just absolutely wrenched. And so. Was your heart pounding? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's like I poured two months into, into this thing between the certificate and the frame itself. And so. Plus the previous five years. Yeah, yeah, right. It was the culmination of so many things, and you think about all of the all of the moments of of great confidence and great disappointment that bring you to such a moment. Um, it feels feels heavy. So when I pulled the veil from the piece, it was like all the oxygen just got sucked out of the room because everybody just gave this collective gasp. Mm. I mean, it was like, it was so good. It was so good to have, you know, just have that kind of reaction, that kind of inaudible expression. Um, it was everything, everything that I was hoping for. And there are so many other like unbelievable people who had been doing calligraphy all of their career, sitting in the audience at these banquet tables. And as intimidating as that was, they'd all at that point become like a family to me. And if ever there was an audience who would appreciate every nuance of the piece that you created, they were sitting in that room with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think if Mrs. K hadn't recognized your artistic giftings that you would be doing what you're doing today? I don't feel like that's a question for me. <laughs> I don't and, and when you 
when you've lived into something and when, when God has met you in your calling so fully, it's hard to imagine it any other way. Hmm. As nervous as it might make me to think about the alternatives and what if, you know, Mrs. K hadn't said something and, and what if I didn't get the sort of like confirmation that I needed from my parents through life or what if I hadn't discovered this small association of penmen that was keeping calligraphy alive in order for me to learn, discover, and grow, what would I be? I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine. But the nice part about it is, I think, as I look back, it's like I just see God's affirming hand on every part of it. And so, as feeble as my fingers might be, His grip is so mighty. And He's held me there every step of the way. So I don't know, but it, it seemed like it was just something that followed me along all my life. I mean, I wanted to be a cowboy when I was a kid. So I drew pictures of horses over and over and over. And after that, I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps and be a pilot in the Air Force. So I drew planes over and over and over. And, uh, and so it was like all these dreams that I had as a kid I thought I was aspiring to the biggest dream of them all I was already doing. Mm -hmm. I was already drawing. I was already living out my dream. And to see it be brought into fruition, it was like, <laughs> you know, you look back and you think there's, there's no other way it could have been. Our lives take so many twists and turns, and sometimes it's difficult to see where our path will take us. But it's so fun to look back and see how all of our past events and choices really come together to make us who we are. Yeah, I love Jake's reflection on drawing his dreams, only to realize that he was already living out his biggest dream. I think so often when we're kids, not all the time, but a lot of the time, we carry those passions with us into the future. And when I hear Jake's story, I don't hear a story of someone trying to earn a living through their craft, even though that happened for Jake. But instead, I hear the journey of someone discovering their passion and how that passion can bring joy and inspiration to other people. And I think that's a lesson that each of us can draw from Jake's experience. Well, let's wrap up this episode. It's time for our little recap segment, and we call it... Let's Rewind the Tape! Jake is using his gifts across multiple disciplines to inspire and captivate everyone who encounters his work which was refined over many years so he could earn his certificate as a master penman. All because a classmate asked him to create her wedding invitations. And because his first grade teacher, Mrs. K, recognized his talent and called him her little artist. You can find out more about Jake at jakewideman.com. That's Jake, W-E-I-D-M-A-N-N. Com. And please do, you guys, you have to see the art that he makes. It is incredible. 
This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller. And me, Dave Heller. Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments. That I helped write. (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.